Have you ever been approached by someone or have you in your own mind thought at times that God is not a benevolent God, is not a uh, loving, caring God? When you, if you, if you haven't, I, let me talk to you afterwards. I can explain it to you. I, I don't know how you can look out in the world and believe that God is sovereign, which means everything that's happening is happening under his watch and care. Or I don't know how you could have ever talked to anybody about God at one time or another and heard or thought in your own mind that if he's a good God, then why, and then fill in the blank, why aren't good things happening in the world? Now we know the good things are happening in the world, but why so much, let's, refer, let's phrase that in a more obvious negative way. Why are so many bad things are happening in the world? Am I the only one that's ever had that question in my mind? Uh, have you, I've encountered people who have just come read, I've encountered Christians that have kind of walked away from their faith because of the, the, the you know, there's a lot of questions that are in this world that they believe is rhetorical. And the question to that, uh, the answer to that question is a rhetorical question, is there isn't a God, or he isn't benevolent. He isn't uh, a loving, caring God. Uh, he isn't someone to be followed and to be worshipped and to be praised. And uh, I want to, this sermon that I want to share with you today is birthed out of uh, someone that uh, my wife and I uh, fellowshiped with. Uh, it's the wife of a husband and wife that we, you know, spent time with and uh, had, had some close ties with. And it was the wife who told me that she, she just had trouble believing and to the point where she didn't believe it anymore that God was a good, benevolent God. And uh, it took me by surprise. I was like, wow. Because we hear, you know, God is good. All the time. And I think we even heard some words today that, you know, testify to that uh, truth. Well, like I said, this sermon that I'm going to share with you today was birthed out of the response. Not that I had right then and there. It's just that I didn't know how to respond to that. It took me, it stunned me and shocked me so much. I didn't know what to say. I mean, I might have had something to say to an unbeliever that said that. But for a believer to say that, it was 
It took me by surprise and I was just shocked. And so I started thinking about it myself. And uh, I want to share with you, uh, first of all, I believe in the sovereignty of God. But I also believe that the things that are happening in the world, Satan is called the God of this world in Second Corinthians chapter 4. And um, he's also called the prince of the power of the air. And the air is this atmosphere that we're living in now. Uh, Jesus said, Satan comes and has come to kill, to steal, and to destroy you. But I am come that you might have life, to give you life, and to give it to you more abundantly. So there's this war going on in the earth where the God of this world is trying to blind the minds of them which believe not, and even blind the minds of others, of Christians. And um, there's a verse of Scripture that says, the servant of the Lord must, must not strive. I, I, when I say Scriptures like this, I want to say hypocrite <laughs> to myself. Strive means strive, argue, fuss, fight. And uh, when I do say hypocrite to myself, uh, I go back on a, a, a psalm in Psalm 40, which David said says, I have preached the whole counsel of God to other kings, to other people. The whole counsel of God. And then later on he says, my sins are as numbered as the hairs on my head. Let's see, maybe I can get away with saying something like that. Except for the fact that I, I could say, my sins are as numbered as the hairs on David's head. So to say that you cannot share the whole counsel of God until you walk the whole counsel of God means forget sharing the whole counsel of God. Because you ain't never going to be like, you, ain't, you know, you're going to be the righteousness of God, but only in Christ Jesus. So you're never going to if you're going to share the whole counsel of God, you're going to share a lot of things that you're missing the mark on yourself. Where hypocrites come in is when you pretend that you've got it all together and then you're sharing that basis. That, that's where hypocrisy Because see, you're pretending, you're acting, you're putting on, you're, you know, everybody follow me so far? But I want to tell you something that before, before you as a believer can ever truly see 
that everything that the devil is doing in this world, God has a plan to counteract it. God has a plan. He comes, he's trying to kill, steal, and destroy you. But God has a plan to turn all that for your good. But in order for you to understand the fullness of that plan, or even the, having the plan itself, you need uh, to understand these three truths that I'm going to tell you today. Three truths. And if you get, I, I want to encourage you that, you know, if we, you can go online and get a podcast, or even if you do Facebook and you are Facebooking with the church, you can get, listen to the Sunday morning services, Sunday night services. And um, you can, I encourage you that if you don't, aren't able, well, let me go back to this scripture. The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, patient in meekness, instructing those who oppose themselves. And this is one of those scriptures that uh, is kind of strange because in some translations it says who oppose themselves and some translations say who po- oppose God. Well, which is it? Yes. Because see, to oppose God is to oppose yourself. And to oppose yourself is to oppose God as a Christian. So he says, Sir of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men. There's one where I kind of mess up a little bit. Be gentle unto all men. Apt to teach. King James. Equipped to teach. Able to teach. Ready to teach. Apt to teach. Instructing those who oppose themselves or oppo- and or oppose God. So I want to encourage you that the next time somebody says, is God a good God? What about all the suffering and pain in the world? I want to encourage you to, if you don't already have this, cannot already put this together from what you already know, study to show thyself approved unto God. So study this so that you too can have an answer. Okay? Everybody, how many of you do that? All right, amen. <laughs> I haven't given it yet. <coughs> oh, we're talking about Second, um, second Timothy 2.24, I believe it is. The servant of the Lord. I thought you meant the verse that's going to answer these questions. I apologize. Okay. So we're going to go over some scripture and we're going to go over them pretty quickly and then we're going to put it all together. What are the three things? Can you, you would get, you will prove, you would prove that I'm not always gentle. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. That's because you know me when, you know my non-gentle way. (laughs) Um, so, here's the scriptures we're going to go over, and then I'm going to show you the answer to these questions. All right, let's look at uh, 
First, we're going to look at Romans, the fourth chapter, which is going to lead us to another chapter, which will be Hebrews, the sixth chapter. Romans 4 and verse 12. Romans 4 and verse 12. This is talking about Abraham, the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only. And what he's going to get into is that the men of uh, the that uh, inherited the promise from God who presented the, the law was presented to through time are saved not by keeping the law but by the keeping of faith by the believing of God believing God and so he says but who also walk he says this is all that he has just said you can study the whole chapter later he says who also walk in the same steps of faithful Abraham. So he says, the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the same steps that uh, 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 faith of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. And the reason it's, we're going to talk just a little bit about circumcision, you find that given to Abraham in chapter 17 of Genesis. Abraham's walk with God starts with Genesis chapter 12. And uh, so, but he gets into this uh, chapter 17 and he is commanding Abraham to be circumcised. But a lot has happened before that chapter. All right. And so in that chapter of circumcision, he says, Abraham had a walk with God and his walk was a walk of faith. And he's saying that you and I, it's not only what account to you, to him for faith, but when we walk in the same steps as faithful Abraham, we are saved by grace through faith or just the just shall live by faith. Righteous shall live by faith. And so he's saying that before the circumcision Abraham had faith, and it was impugned. There's two different righteousness of God. There are the righteousness which are imparted, which is, which comes by works, and the righteousness which is of faith, which is impugned. Impugned means you didn't deserve it. Hello? So let's go on. For the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, faith is made of, made void, and the promise is made of none effect. Because the law worketh wrath, for where no law is, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end of the promise might, to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to only that, not to that only which is of the law, but of that which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And he's talking about those that walk in the same step. And he's talking to the Gentile Christians and explaining that even faith, faith was impugned to Abraham in the same way it is, it is also impugned to us because we didn't do anything to deserve it. We just believed. Okay? There, did I do the verse before already? 
Yes, I did. Thank you. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed. Now, this is very simple. As it is written, I have made you, Abraham, a father of many nations. And he says, before him whom he believed. In other words, Abraham, God said something and he stood before God, before him whom he believed and agreed with him. And it's going by talking about when God told Abram that he was Abraham, father of many nations, when he hadn't had a child yet. And so he says, before him whom he believed, even God who quickeneth the dead and calls those things which be not as though they were. When God said, let there be light, there wasn't light until he said it. And when he said it, it became light. He called something which did not exist and spoke it into existence. And this is what it's saying here. Abraham did the same thing. He says he called himself Abram, Abraham instead of Abram because God told him to. All right. He stood before God and did what God said. Next verse. Who against hope? Uh, this is King James Bible. I love King James. Don't get me wrong in it when I say what I say. But there's a lot of things that are maybe even more to you than to me. But there's a lot of things that doesn't really say it the way that at least I understand it. And it says, who against hope believed in hope? And uh, what some translations clearly say, who against hope? In other words, when all reason for hope was gone, that's what that means, who against hope, believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations. In other words, when all human reason for hope was gone, Abraham hoped on in faith. Because if you're looking for human reason, you know, we walk by faith and not by sight. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. You see, you have to believe what God says before you see it. Amen? It says, might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken so shall thy seed be. Did you know who thy seed is? Us. Okay. Next verse. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body. This is another one. If you look in the trans- multiple translations, it, it actually says, being not weak in faith, he considered his own body. And you look it up in any other translation, it says that. He considered not his own body, which is true. They're both true. In other words, he considered his own body and then said, no, I don't believe that. You see what I'm saying? That's why they can be the same same truth. When he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith giving glory to God and being fully persuaded that which what that which he had promised he was able also to perform and therefore it it was imputed 
to him for righteousness. You see, now why, why is this all important? It's because we are supposed, Paul is saying, we need to walk in the same steps as faithful Abraham. We need to believe like Abraham did. Right now, for time's sake, we're just going to go on. Go put uh, Hebrews, the sixth chapter, Hebrews six, verse 13 through 18. This is one of the most beautiful places. But you've got to get a balance here because he's about to go into talking in Hebrews about promises that God made to Abraham. We looked in Romans 8 and we saw Abraham's re- response to those promises. But now we're going to look at some promises. All of the things that I'm going to be talking to you about today as far as uh, three, say three, three uh, spiritual reasons, you know. It's all right if you reason with God's reason. See, he says, come, let us reason together, saith the Lord of hosts. So this is God's reasoning. Doesn't necessarily stand to man's reasoning, but it'll stand to God's reasoning. Okay. And so he says, and when God made promise to Abraham, now you see how it's going back talking about this. And remember, we are called by what I have just read in Romans uh, four to be like Abraham to walk in the same steps as faithful Abraham. So when he's talking in Hebrews about this promise that he made to Abraham, you can find uh, this covenant in uh, uh, Genesis 15, 17, and 22. And you can find these uh, co- uh, promises that are referred to in the Old Testament. We just talked about it a little bit in Romans 4. But here it goes. It says, when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no greater. And you can find this actually in uh, uh, Genesis 22, verse 15. You know, but it, ref- it, it it's stated there, but it applies to Hebrews, uh, I mean, Genesis 15, 17 and 22. OK, and he says, when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, you know, we just got through singing, greater is our Savior, greater is he. Well, here it says, because God could not, uh, uh, there was nothing greater that he could swear by. He swore uh, by himself. Or, you know, like, if you put your hand on the Bible, uh, uh, when you raise your right hand, you put your hand on the Bible for I swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So help me God. And so help me God means help me tell the truth. And also, if I fail to tell the truth, may you strike me dead. That's what swearing before God. That's why Jesus says swear not at all. But let your yes be yes. Let your word be so true that you don't have to swear. Okay. But here God is saying that he swears He didn't have to and shouldn't have to, but he did. He says, because God made a promise to Abraham, there was, <clears throat> there was nothing greater to swear by. There was n- nothing that was greater than he was that could make him keep his promise. You, you, you following this? Okay. So he says, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. He swore to himself. He, he, this is basically saying... Abraham, if I do not keep my promise to you, I will self-destruct. 
That's, that's what this means. I will destroy myself. And I'm going to tell you something. Uh, there was a lot of uh, commotion going on in heaven when God starts talking like this. They all go like, whoa. You know. And because if you can see in Genesis 15, 17, and 22, you can see that what God is saying, I'm going to show you more about this in a minute, but he says, I, he swore by himself. He swore saying, in Genesis uh, 15, there is a thing that happens there that if you don't know, the New Testament is in the Old Testament concealed, then you, you'll miss it. But in the Old Testament, God, Genesis 15, puts Abraham to sleep. Everything that's happening here is a is revealed in the New Testament through Christ. Everything that's happening here is a figure or symbolic of what is going to happen through, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The death, burial, and resurrection. It's all symbolic of coming to that fulfillment of promise. Okay? And when he says... In Genesis 15, he divided, he says, he took a number of animals. Abraham was to cut them up and to put them touching one another on both sides. And then it says, a great darkness came on Abraham. And he went to sleep. And a great darkness came on him. And then he began to see a vision of this furnace smoke, hot furnace burning smoke and a lamp lit passing between the two pieces and what we we don't know unless you know we study and what abraham knew was this was god uh, making a covenant with abraham and in the making of this covenant what he is saying as this smoke passes between the two people. What's smoke in the Bible? The Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit. But this is coming from a furnace of fire. And it's coming with a light. Who is the light? Jesus Christ. You know what he's saying there? God is saying, Abraham, I'm going to do something. I'm going to make a promise to you. And I want you to know something. If I don't keep it, so be to me what has happened to those animals. Which is even more importantly, is God actually does it. All right, now we're going to look at that in a minute. What I may say does it, he does divide himself. See, the sacrificial animal is God. He divides himself. All right? For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. Next verse. Saying, surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, this is Abraham, patiently endured. You know what? Uh, most charismatic Christians have a powerful, powerful faith, you know, for a day. The problem is we don't have patience. You know, if, it's, if it does, well, I guess that God didn't want to do that. 
But it says he endured patiently. He obtained to attain the promise. For men verily swear by the greater. An oath for a confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Back in those days, they said, if I swear to God, uh, they meant it. <laughs> all right? Not so much anymore. But he says, they swear by something that is so much greater than them, they have no control of it. He says, I swear by God that I will do this. He says, men swear by greater. An oath for a confirmation. He says, why why do men do that? Because if they put their hand on the Bible and they raise their right hand, then you are more likely to see how serious this is and that they would believe what you're going to say. He says, it's an oath for a confirmation to them. It ends the argument, the strife. Next verse. Wherein God, willing more abundantly, say willing, more abundantly, you don't have to say this now, to show unto the heirs, who are the heirs? We are, yes. To the heirs of the promise, the immutability of his counsel. In other words, the unfailing, the the impossibility of his counsel being false, confirmed it by an oath. So no, it was impossible for God to lie, and yet he willingly, more abundantly, to show to us, to show himself that he is telling the truth when he promised this, the immutability of his counsel, he confirmed it by an oath, in that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, he might show a strong consolation. So by two immutable things, one was it's impossible for him to lie. And though yet it was impossible for him to lie, he swore, and you can read this in Genesis 17, he swore by himself. He, he, he said, if, I, if I'm lying, I'm dying. All right? For God, uh, impossible for God to lie, that he might have, that who? That he might have a strong consolation. Who is that who have fled for refuge, lay hold, excuse me, that, that we might have a strong consolation. Who's we? We. We, we. We are we. Okay? Uh, for a strong, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us. This God, God wants us to believe him so much that he made a promise and he swore by himself saying, if I'm, if I fail to keep my word, I will destroy myself. Just as these two animals were split in two. All right. And that's in chapter 15. And then it goes on and says, which hope we have as an anchor of our, of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which entereth into and within the veil. You know what? Within the veil, that means into the presence of God. We can enter into the veil by having a hope that is anchored on the hope that God said, which he says in Romans 14, when all human reason for hope, Abraham hoped on in faith. Okay, both sure and steadfast and which entereth into within the veil. Now go to... uh, Go to, uh, excuse me, Ephesians, the first chapter, starting with verse 15. Now, do you see how far God went 
so that we would believe him. Do you see that? Amen. Okay. This is a prayer that Paul says. And he says this, and he says, wherefore, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints. So what is he saying there? After I heard of your faith and love. You see, this is not a prayer that is, I'm not saying you, you can't use this prayer, but this prayer that he is about to say is for the believers. It's for the people that have faith. It's for the people that are walking in love. All right. Wherefore, after I heard of your faith and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Now, this is something that we need to have more of. We should not cease giving thanks for each other and praying for each other. And not just, you know, God bless them. Oh, no, please don't. I don't want to get you wrong. That's okay. It's a beautiful thing to do, especially if you know what you're saying. What you, but he says, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus, making mention of you in my prayers, the God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom, revelation, and the knowledge of him. So he's telling after I heard of your faith and after I heard of your love, I'm praying that God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ might give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know. See, he's praying that God gives you the spirit of wisdom, revelation, knowledge, and that your eyes of your spiritual eyes be opened up that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what is the riches of the glory of the inheritance in the saints. And what? You see those three what's there? All right. That you may know what, you know, what is now this is where it gets really impressive. This is God talking. And I'm going to I'm going to tell you something that now, I, you know, if I if I ever get. After 42 years, two years being in the pastor, I've, I don't know why I feel like I have to apologize for what I'm about to say uh, or to give a, a addendum, addendum or whatever that is called. Okay. But I'm going to say something that can stir you. Okay. Well, some of you are more knowledgeable, legalistic Christians. Okay. What is the exceeding greatness of his power to us or toward us who believe. So what is he praying? He's praying that God would give you this uh, wisdom, revelation, knowledge, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power? Now notice these words, exceeding greatness of his power. You got three words there, exceeding. We all know what exceeding means. We all know what greatness is of his power. What's the next two words? To us. Okay. The exceeding greatness of his power to us. According to the working of his mighty power. Leave this up. According to the working of his mighty power. You look at those three words. Exceeding greatness of his power. And, and you know, uh, there are so many words for power. Uh, one, of them that, that one of them that is used repeatedly here is dunamis. And there's other works for power. Well, working, which is organic, 
which we get our word uh, ergonomics from. So it says, the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. And then it's going to explain those six different descriptions of power. And it's going to explain what is he talking about? Next verse. Which he wrought in Christ or which he worked in Christ or which he established in Christ or which he did in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Did you, did you get to that? What is the, now first of all, we need wisdom, revelation in his knowledge. And then secondly, he's praying that we may know the exceeding greatness of his power, uh, that we may know the, you know, uh, the, back up to the last verse. Let's see. What is the exceeding greatness of power? Second half, according to the working of his mighty power, which he accomplished in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Now, I want you to remember this part because I'm going to go back to this part in a minute and show you something. And set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion. Three more words that we are far above <coughs> and every name that is named. There is no name on earth that the resurrected Christ doesn't have a greater name than. Okay? So he says, far above all principality and power and dominion and every name, every problem, all the things that can happen to us in this world, Christ is greater. We serve a greater Savior. Okay? And every name is not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And he hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of the fullness of him, fullness of Christ, the fullness of God. What is in the fullness of God? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all and all. Next verse. Next verse. Okay, there is no more. Okay, forget it. Hold on. Just pause right there. All right. <laughs> I, I know this by heart and I didn't know there was no next verse. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all and all. Okay, so we're back up. I'm going to tell you, this is what I'm going to tell you. This is going to shake you to your core. All right. And I know that God is all powerful. But I'm going to say something that maybe sound like I'm contradicting that. So go with it if you want to. I don't care. Here's what I believe that he's trying to communicate to us. Get this. Is that when God raised Jesus from the dead, the exceeding greatness of his power, according to working of his mighty power, which he established when he raised Jesus from the dead, that it took every ounce of God's power and strength to raise Jesus from the dead. 
No, no, you said, wait a minute, you're, you're, you're going to put a limit on God. All right, let me rephrase that so if you have a problem with that. This was the, the most, God, let there be light. And there was light. And God created the heavens and the earth, the stars. Bam. And I'm going to tell you something. It was nothing compared to what God did when he raised his son from the dead. Do you understand where I'm coming from? What God did when he created the universe, it didn't take even a smidgen of God's power compared to what it took of God to raise Jesus from the dead. I am convinced, and I don't have any scripture to prove this, okay? But I am convinced that all of heaven and all the angels up there were just a little bit nervous. They were scared. You know, I'm trying to put it in human terms. There may not be spiritual terms that fit this. But, you know, I think that's what God is trying to say to us. The exceeding greatness of his power, according to the working of his mighty power. Do you understand? All right. Now, I'm going to tell you why. And I'm going to say something else. And some of you already know the answer to this question. I'm going to say it did not take that much power for God to raise Jesus from the dead. He said, boy, you really got contradicted yourself then. Okay, so I'm going to skip some verses and I'm going to say this. What is the exceeding greatness of his power according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ. And then we have chapter divisions in the Bible. There's no chapter divisions in things. But it's, it's just, you know, it says all the stuff that was done in Christ when he raised him from the dead, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead, set him on his own right hand, the heavenly place, blah, 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 blah. But remember that to us who believe? All right. So what it is was this. Verse 1 of chapter 2 is, starts off like this. Bam. You know, you weren't ready for that, were you? I'm sorry. Okay. Oh, okay. All right. Now, here's the, here's the key. What is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he established, accomplished, when he wrought in Christ, when he raised him from the dead, and you. You understand now? You see, it, didn't, it wasn't that getting Christ out of hell was not the problem. The problem was getting Don Yarbrough out of hell. You see, that's why it took everything God had, because see, I belong there. It wasn't such a problem of getting Jesus out of hell, because he didn't belong there. But what the problem was is, I did, and you did. You belong there. Amen? Okay, so I'm going to put these things together. Three things, say three things. One is Hebrews chapter 6 says that God wants and desires and hungers for us to believe him. Not because uh, it's impossible for him to lie, 
but because he also went to great extremes to get us to believe him. And those extremes was that he swore by himself, on himself. You see, God went as far as he could go, trying, wanting us to believe him, to walk in the same steps as faithful Abraham. Here, it says, God used the most power of all he had within the last little bit. Now, back up. I know God's all powerful. Okay, please don't stop. Get that out of your head. Just think God wanted us to know how far he went to save us. So God swore by himself and then he uh, went so far to raise Jesus from the dead. And the third thing that I want to tell you, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So he went as far as he could to get us to believe him. He went as far as he could to raise us from the dead. And he gave us the best he had. And you don't think God is a good God. Hello? Do you see that? Until you see that, you will always have these lingering doubts. Well, what about the poor person in Africa that never heard the truth? I believe God is a good God. And I believe he went to the limits for us. And I believe he gave the best he had for every single person. Amen. Hallelujah. Remember that next time somebody says God isn't good. <laughs>